0: Listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. This week, the legislature got to work as the session drew closer to its final stretch. Lawmakers talked about homeschooling, raw milk, keeping youth safe online, allowing 14 year olds to work, and creating a lasting monument to one of the state's most beloved figures war hero Woody Williams. We'll also hear about the Postal Service's proposed changes to mail processing, what the Legislative Auditor's Office does, and finally, we'll talk to a Marshall University professor who studies fossils. I'm your host this week, Curtis Tate. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. West Virginia has the highest rate of kidney disease in the country, with close to five percent of adults in the state diagnosed with the disease. Emily Rice has more.
1: According to the director of the National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Diseases, Dr. Griffin Rogers, West Virginians need to take better care of their kidneys. Kidneys filter blood and produce urine. They also produce two important hormones, one that produces red blood cells and another that keeps bones healthy.
2: First sign might be a fractured bone, for example. But generally, the signs are, are, are really not that uh, specific. Uh, and for that reason, uh, kidney disease is called a silent disease.
1: Rogers said with the highest rate of high blood pressure in the country and the highest rate of diabetes in the country, West Virginia's comorbidities make rates of kidney disease higher in West Virginia. Rogers said a healthy lifestyle is important to preventing kidney disease. Practices like getting enough sleep, exercising daily, making healthier food choices, and quitting smoking. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston.
0: Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. Mon Power has settled a case with consumer groups that will affect households that have rooftop solar panels. Existing customers receive a credit of 11 to 13 cents per kilowatt hour for the power their solar panels send back to the grid, a process known as net energy metering. Mon Power and Potomac Edison propose to cut that credit in half to 6.6 cents per kilowatt hour. The side settled on a compromise of roughly $0.09 a kilowatt hour. The new credit takes effect on January 1, 2025. Existing customers will still receive the higher credit. The West Virginia Public Service Commission must still approve the settlement. A bill moving through the House of Delegates would protect the higher net metering credit. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. A bill to expand the sale of raw milk passed third reading in the House of Delegates.
2: Randy Yoe has more. House Bill 4911 would remove the restriction that raw milk can only be purchased through an agreement with a dairy farmer. Delegate Amy Summers, a Republican from Taylor County, was among the majority in the chamber favoring the expanded freedom to buy and sell raw milk.
3: My parents and grandparents are rolling over in their graves. They've been farming in West Virginia since the 1700s, and they would not believe that we think you can't, you wouldn't have the choice if you wanted to drink raw milk or not. No one's shoving it down your throat.
2: The debate on the bill centered on a paragraph noting that a person who sells raw milk shall be immune from lawsuits and liability. The bill sponsor noted that it's not a blanket immunity. It protects against accidents, not misconduct. The raw milk bill passed 76 to 19 and goes to the Senate. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yoe in Charleston. The Senate discussed how to keep West Virginia youths
0: safer online. The chamber passed bills addressing ways that artificial intelligence could be used to sexually exploit children on the Internet and protect the personal information of people online. Brianna Heaney has more.
4: The use of photos to create deepfakes of sexually explicit content is becoming a trend among child predators. The content can be generated using photos of children online and on social media sites. Senate Bill 740 prohibits digital manipulation of sexually explicit content that includes minors. Senator Patricia Rucker, a Republican from Jefferson County, is one of the sponsors of the bill. She said she received an email from a constituent whose 14-year-old son had been affected by AI-generated child pornography. They took a picture that he had on Instagram. They photoshopped it to put a naked uh, depiction of his body and then were trying to extort money from him or they were going to post it all over social media. As you can imagine, he was very upset, and thankfully he went straight to his parents, but they called the police, and just so you know, the police told them, we don't know what we can do about this. Senate Bill 741 prohibits the creation, production, distribution, or possession of artificially generated child pornography. Senator Charles Trump, a Republican from Morgan County, sponsored and introduced the bill.
2: This bill makes clear that if you do it through the use of artificial intelligence and generate images, then it's going to be subject to felony penalties, crime under West Virginia law.
4: Both bills passed unanimously and head to the House for consideration. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston.
0: A bill relating to child labor and 14-year-old
2: workers moved through the legislature. Randy Yohe has more. Removing the requirement that 14- or 15-year-olds obtain a work permit is key to House Bill 5159. Instead, parental permission and an age certificate from the Department of Labor is needed for children ages 14 and 15 to work. Some opposed to the bill did not want to see the input of local schools taken out of the child labor equation. Delegate Todd Longenacre, a Republican from Greenbrier County, said code changes in the bill were procedural and 14-year-olds should have the freedom to work.
5: And if there's one thing kids need today in our society is to start learning work ethic at an earlier age, not a later age. This is a good bill. Let's let those kids get to work.
2: The Child Labor Bill passed 83-16 to 16 and now goes to the Senate. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yoey in Charleston.
0: A bill in the House to adjust homeschooling requirements sparked discussion about child welfare and abuse. Chris Schultz has more.
6: House Bill 5180 changes how required academic assessments of homeschooled students are presented to the county superintendent. Delegate Mike Pushkin, a Democrat from Kanawha County, proposed an amendment in the House Education Committee that would bar authorizing homeschooling if there is a pending child abuse investigation or a domestic violence conviction against either custodial parent or an instructor. Pushkin said he recognizes most homeschoolers are involved in caring guardians, but sometimes homeschooling is used to hide abuse.
7: Oftentimes, somebody at the school spots the signs of abuse and that's how they find out. And that's what could lead that phone call being made that might save a child's life.
6: The amendment is similar to Rayleigh's Law, named after an eight-year-old girl who died of abuse and neglect after being withdrawn from school. The bill has never made it out of committee. The amendment was voted down and the bill was recommended to the full house for consideration. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Charleston.
0: A natural gas pipeline's completion date and cost have been adjusted upward yet again. Equitrans Midstream, the builder of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, said Tuesday that challenging winter weather in January had delayed the project's completion to the second quarter of the year. The delays have also boosted the project's cost to nearly $7.7 billion from $7.2 billion. The 303-mile, 42-inch pipeline is expected to transport as much as 2 billion cubic feet of gas per day from north-central West Virginia to southern Virginia. It faced many court challenges over the past several years from landowners and environmental groups. The project has been delayed multiple times. Congress mandated its completion last year as part of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. It is a top priority for the state's elected leaders and the gas industry. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. The first confirmed cases of avian influenza in West Virginia since 2006 has been found in a non-commercial backyard flock in Kanawha County. Emily Rice has more.
1: According to the West Virginia Department of Health, public health risk is limited to those who had direct contact with the birds. The department is working with the West Virginia Department of Agriculture to monitor the exposed individuals to prevent transmission of the virus. Highly pathogenic avian influenza is an airborne respiratory virus that spreads easily among chickens through nasal and eye secretions as well as manure. West Virginia State Health Officer Dr. Matthew Christensen said in a press release that the confirmed case does not present an immediate public health concern. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston.
0: War hero Herschel Woody Williams was honored at the U.S. Capitol following his death. Now, a statue of him could be on permanent display there. The Senate Finance Committee approved a resolution Wednesday that will place a statue of Woody Williams in Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. His youngest grandson, Chad Graham, thanked the committee.
7: We feel as a family this is such a tremendous honor. It is something that we were so humbled and excited
8: to hear about.
0: Williams, the last surviving Medal of Honor recipient from World War II, died in 2022 at age 98. Lawmakers from both parties and both chambers paid tribute to Williams in the Capitol Rotunda. If the legislature approves the resolution, a statue of Williams will replace that of John Kenna, a Confederate veteran who was later elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. The United States Postal Service held a public hearing this month in Charleston. Officials discussed their plans to downsize a local mail processing facility. But union representatives came away from the hearing with questions left unanswered. Now they say their trust in the USPS has only further eroded. Jack Walker has that story.
9: That was Debbie Serretti, executive vice president of the American Postal Workers Union. She serves as the union's second highest officer nationally and visited Charleston to speak at the hearing. Intense debate over the facility began late last year. USPS officials had just announced plans to move some local postal operations to Pennsylvania. Union representatives were not happy.
8: And we're concerned that there possibly could be one of our members, or if not one more, multiple members... Uh, could possibly be relocated or moved out of state, uh, you know, ultimately
9: uprooting families and lives. That's Tim Holstein, who serves as Vice President of APWU 133, the local chapter of the Postal Workers Union. Holstein and fellow workers fear that reduced operations at the Charleston facility could mean layoffs, transfers, and even longer delivery times for West Virginia residents. Attendance from national USPS and union representatives at Wednesday's hearing reflects an increasing spotlight on the Charleston facility, which serves as West Virginia's only full mail processing center. In 2021, USPS announced a 10-year plan to restructure operations nationally to enhance their current services. But Zaretti said national union representatives see this as something coming at the expense of rural communities specifically. Still, during the hearing, USPS officials denied that any changes to the facility would affect delivery times or mean layoffs for career employees. Here's USPS coordinator Ted Hansen from Wednesday's hearing.
5: It is important to note that business mail entry, post office, station and branch retail services are not expected to change and delivery services will be unaffected because of this review.
9: West Virginia Public Broadcasting didn't get to speak with USPS officials directly for this story. But in a written statement, Susan Wright, a USPS spokeswoman, said she understands workers discomfort over the proposed changes because it's a natural response to change in general. Wright wrote that if the USPS follows through with its proposed changes, only 24 career employees would be affected. She also said these employees would not be laid off outright and that the number could change as plans develop further. Additionally, Wright noted that the plans also come with investments in the facility's equipment and maintenance. But Holstein said local union workers still worry that layoffs for temporary employees would affect people who depend on the facility for their income. Plus, he said the need for facility improvements already reflects a strained relationship between local workers and national USPS officials. My
8: question to the Postal Service is, if we're concerned about LED lighting, better bathrooms and break rooms for employees, what have we been doing the last 30 years uh, since that building has been there?
9: Holstein said facility concerns like these have already put union workers on edge. The buildup to the hearing only deepened frustrations because the USPS delayed hosting it until after they released initial findings. The hearing, initially slated for late January, was rescheduled for Valentine's Day, which Holstein said affected turnout. He also said it made workers feel like the USPS didn't care much to listen to the union.
8: They scheduled it for Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday, more importantly. And we believe that they did that with the malicious intent to keep the public away from hearing the truth that we are trying to project
9: to them. USPS officials have denied these claims, saying they simply needed more time to complete their findings. But mounting pressure from union employees has only increased attention on the local facility. Last month, state lawmakers expressed support for the union on the Senate floor. And on Thursday, Senator Shelley Moore Capito said she's worried about how the hearing transpired.
4: Well, I mean, I'm very concerned and I've expressed that to the Postmaster General DeJoy. Uh, I'm disappointed that we didn't have that public hearing before they put their findings out. That concerns me.
9: Workers and community members will have a brief window to submit comments over the USPS findings before changes to the Charleston facility are finalized. Holstein hopes people will submit their concerns. But he also said workers don't have faith that the USPS officials are willing to work with the union to develop more community-focused solutions.
8: The problem is, the Postal Service has not approached the union in any consort of effort to try to make these changes or to see what we can implement together as one, to be productive. They haven't done that. And so until they do such a thing, obviously we look at this as a
9: loss of trust. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jack Walker in Shepherdstown.
0: The Legislative Auditor's Office has long been a watchdog of the executive branch of government. It makes sure that money is spent properly. But bills in both the House and the Senate are changing the way the auditor operates. Randy Yohe has that
2: story for the legislature today. Two experts on that subject that I have with me today are House Speaker Roger Hanshaw and and Delegate Mike Pushkin. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Yes, sir. Thanks for having us on. Uh, Mr. Speaker, let me start with you. Just briefly explain what the Legislative Auditor's Office does, who they report to, and what your bill does to change things.
5: Sure, Randy, well to start, it's not our bill, it's a Senate bill, as you just said, but the Legislative Auditor's Office is an entity that exists as a, as a creation of statute here, as you as you say, but it, it exists to inform the legislature about just exactly what's going on in the primarily the executive branch of government. So how well is the executive branch conforming to the statutory expectations of the programs that the legislature has created, how are state funds being utilized, what are things that could be done that would make programs more effective? What are things we as the legislature could do to effectuate the goals of programs better? And it usually, it usually presents itself in the form of, of reports back to the Joint Committee on Government and Finance okay. and the Committee on Post Audits, which we then take as, as recommendations for potential action. So it's not just the governor's
2: office, but all the agencies, all the different agencies that that are to be kept an eye on. All across
5: the executive branch.
2: Okay. Now you have a bill. companion bill in the house
5: what changes does that make so what what brought about the 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 bill at all was the 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 transition that we had when our our incumbent long-term legislative auditor and legislative manager aaron allred retired from state government back in december so mr allred had been serving in two positions at once he had been serving as both the legislative auditor and what we call the legislative manager which for for a number of years had been two separate positions Aaron Aaron filled them together and brought them into a to, to a unified command structure down in that office. So when when he no longer was in the position, we took the opportunity to ask, does the current structure actually best reflect the practices that we want to see the uh, the Legislative Auditor's Office perform, and and how best can we how best can we Transition that office to meet sort of our 21st century strategy for operation.
2: Delegate Pushkin, you yeah. have some concerns here. You put out a, you and, and, and the Democrats of West Virginia put out a press release last week that said some of these changes will turn this office from a watchdog to a lapdog. Yeah. Uh, what do you, what do you okay, base well, first that First of all,
7: I have the utmost respect for Speaker Hanshaw. I've had the honor of serving uh, with Speaker Hanshaw. And I know that uh, he's an honest guy and I would never question his motives or his intentions. I believe he's doing what he the best he can uh, to help improve the lives of the people of West Virginia. Um, however, I believe this bill could set a very dangerous precedent when we remove any sort of semblance of of independence from the legislative auditor's office and put that completely in code under the purview of, of the speaker and the president of the Senate. Of course there's no involvement of the either minority leader. Um, I fear that that a less scrupulous speaker or Senate president could would have the power to weaponize this office. And while I, this is the way that the office has operated under, under the set of guidelines it has now for I believe over 30 years, I'm not exactly sure what the problem is
0: that we're trying to address. That was Delegate Mike Pushkin and House Speaker Roger Hanshaw speaking with Randy Yoey for the Legislature Today. To hear more of that discussion, visit our website. And tune into the Legislature Today Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. A researcher at Marshall University has discovered an entirely new type of plesiosaur after studying the fossils of two different creatures. News director Eric Douglas spoke with Robert Clark, the academic laboratory manager for the biology department at Marshall, to find out more. We'll
3: let him explain the name, though. Let's define what a plesiosaur is. When I talk to people about plesiosaurs, I think it's helpful to start with the Loch Ness Monster. So picture the Loch Ness Monster in your mind, And what a lot of people tend to picture is basically what a plesiosaur looked like. It's this huge uh, reptilian sea creature with a head with sharp teeth, a long neck, kind of a teardrop-shaped body, and four flippers. But the difference is, unlike the Loch Ness Monster, plesiosaurs were actually real, and they lived in oceans all over the world during the time of the dinosaurs.
2: Okay, interesting. So so how did you, what, what's, what's been the process that you were studying a uh, plesiosaur and realized, hey, wait a minute, this isn't something we've ever
3: seen before. It, it started actually before I came on board. Uh, my my advisor here at Marshalls, Dr. O'Keefe, uh, had had found this um, this skull. He didn't pull it out of the ground himself. It, it was found by a uh, paleontologist named James Martin in 1998. Uh, for the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. And so when I became a grad student, I started studying this skull. You know, you start anatomical comparisons and learning about plesiosaurs and this family of plesiosaurs called polycythylids. And eventually realized that there's this other skull over at the University of Colorado uh, Boulder that, um, that looks remarkably similar to the South Dakota skull. And so we start really comparing that and talking to those guys. That one was found in 1975 by a paleontologist named Ken Carpenter. The University of Colorado Boulder graciously allowed us to come and pick up that skull and bring it back to Marshall and really study it. And then they also have a nearly complete skeleton of the rest of the animal. And so we were able to travel out there a second time and spend a few days really analyzing the the rest of the skeleton and realize these are the same animal and it's a new type of polycatylid unlike um, any other polycatylid please that's been found and the neat thing too is turns out same exact rock layer just 42 miles apart on either side of the border between those two states we're very confident they're the same species and they're a new species and genus
2: so you said this is a, a its own genus and um Within the family tree of plesiosaurs,
3: yeah. So one thing that sets this guy apart is this this family of polycetale plesiosaurs. They're they're often around fifteen feet long. Uh, this is actually the smallest polycetale plesiosaur known as an adult, um, at only around seven and a half feet long. So this thing was just a little bit longer than a, a human is tall. It it looks similar to human size if you're swimming next to it.
2: I, when I looked at the the background information on this I I realized I couldn't pronounce anything um uh-huh. <laughs> well, tell me again
3: the the name of the the poly what they're they're polycotylids polycatylid. the plesiosaur family yeah okay polytylid and the well but then what's this
5: specific one that you and were-
3: then yeah this this particular polycotylid we named unctahila. The the reason we named it Uncedahila um, is because it's a Native American Lakota word. the The Lakota people, their tradition tells of this mystical horned water serpent that lived in the part of the country where we found these specimens.
5: In in the Dakotas and in
3: yep, in the Dakotas, Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, that that area. And all the way up into Canada and down in... What haven't I asked about that you want to talk about? So it's it's been a long-standing debate. How did plesiosaurs swim? It's really interesting because um, there's nothing on Earth alive today that has basically two sets of underwater wings. They had these huge flippers. You think about a sea turtle, it's swimming mostly with its front flippers, right? The back ones it's more steering with. Plesiosaurs had huge rear flippers too and they were uh, swimming with these two sets of of flippers, these two pairs of of underwater wings. And so how does that work? Um, it's it's interesting because a lot of sea creatures you think about kind of an undulating body that's swimming more like a fish or um, or like a like a dolphin but with plesiosaurs they um, didn't have a lot of flexibility in their body itself. It's almost like a turtle, not with a shell, but really compact body. They weren't undulating through the water. Instead, they were using their fore flippers and hind flippers to flap around.
0: That was paleontologist Robert Clark from Marshall University discussing a new type of plesiosaur he helped identify with Eric Douglas. To read more of the interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. Parts of Appalachia saw a natural gas boom from fracking, but as fortunes have changed, the industry has left behind dangerous industrial sites, including one near Fairmont, which became a popular hangout spot for the young. Investigative reporter Justin Noble has been looking into that and spoke with Inside Appalachia's Mason Adams about what he discovered.
10: Over the course of my reporting into oil field radioactivity, I've learned that a lot more comes to the surface with oil and gas development than just the oil and gas. The industry brings a lot of really toxic materials up from deep in the earth. And often you have heavy metals, you have carcinogens like benzene, volatile organics, and you have radioactive metals as well. And one of the most concerning ones is the radioactive metal radium, which is a known human carcinogen. And you have this really big waste stream in the oilfield brine that comes up. Industry also calls that produced water. This is a major waste stream across the U.S. 3 billion gallons of oil field brine a day comes to the surface with oil and gas development. And the industry has to do something with that. So the industry has had an interest in trying to, quote, treat that brine, trying to take out the toxicity, take out the heavy metals, take out the radioactivity, And you've got a lot of salt, right? So you can transform that into a usable product, maybe like road salts. And then with the watery component, you can use that to frack new wells. And that sounds really great to the industry. They love to promote that they can take a waste stream and repurpose it for something beneficial. The problem with brine is it has such a complex brew of toxic elements that it's actually really, really hard to treat. It's really hard to remove all the different contaminants from brine and get this clean product that you can then send back out into the world. And even if you do that successfully, you have collected all the toxicity, right? And and if part of that toxicity is radioactivity, you've created a facility where you are concentrating and collecting radioactivity. And at this particular site in West Virginia, this is exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to treat the oil field brine And if your plant isn't working perfectly, you're going to get gunked up really quickly and you're building up heavy metals, you're building up radioactivity, and you're building up potentially all sorts of problems. And across the board, um, these plants fail.
6: Yeah. So we're talking about Fairmont, Brian, where that Geiger counter reads about 7,000 counts per minute, which maxes out the unit, you later drive home the point that working at those levels of radioactivity for one week would take a worker over yearly limits set by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. But yet people, teenagers, can wander in here without being stopped, it sounds like. What's the status of this facility?
10: I think anywhere in America, if you have this kind of busted up industrial site, it's going to be a place where kids are going to want to hang out. And so if you've got this site sitting there up on a hill right above the Monongahela River, just outside the city limits of Fairmont, which is where this site is, um, it's an attractive place to just go and hang out. There's there's grassy fields, there's this big parking lot, there's these weird beat-up buildings that you can wander around in and, and containers of stuff, all this different equipment. Um, and what we realized and learned when we went there is it is, wildly radioactive, and parts of it are really, really dangerously radioactive. But as soon as the article came out, the EPA really kicked into high gear. They had found levels of radioactivity even higher uh, than we found. And the EPA is now working with the community. They've set up a call center for local residents to call and get information on the site. And I was told by an EPA official they are in the process of, of fencing it off and you know, moving forward with this kind of bureaucratic process of dudding of the facility to see if it really fits the role of, of a National Superfund site. So they're in the process of, I wouldn't say cleaning it up, but setting it up for a possible cleanup and at least making sure that people from the town can't move around in it.
0: That was investigative reporter Justin Noble speaking with Inside Appalachia. To hear the rest of that story and more, listen to Inside Appalachia Sunday mornings at 7 and Sunday evenings at 6 on West Virginia Public Broadcasting. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Curtis Tate.